From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. There obviously are some circumstances in which speech can cause harm. At the same time, I also think this notion of speech being harmful has become very elastic and expansive in problematic ways. That's Suzanne Nossel. She's the CEO of PEN America, a nonprofit organization that, quote, stands at the intersection of literature and human rights to protect free expression in the United States and worldwide, end quote. PEN is known for its association with the world's most celebrated writers. Founded in the 1920s, its first members included Willa Cather, Eugene O'Neill, and Robert Frost. And in recent years, it has supported and honored authors like Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie. So it's not surprising that Nossel and her team have been on the front lines of the fight against book bans, which are on the rise in school districts across the country. I spoke with Nossel about those bans and the people behind them, but we also had a broader discussion about the state of free speech in the United States. And we broached some sensitive questions like, does the political left have a free speech problem? And can the value of free speech coexist with other progressive values like diversity and inclusion? That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user, at Doc Egon Spengler. He writes, I realize I'm getting way ahead of things here, but if Trump is convicted in the classified documents case, will Judge Cannon be in charge of sentencing him? Could she be required to sentence him to prison time? And or if she doesn't, can the government appeal? Well, Doc, you're absolutely right. You're getting way ahead of things here. We don't even have a final trial date set. Donald Trump, even though you might have strong feelings about his guilt or his innocence, is innocent until proven guilty. The presumption is there. All jury trials are difficult. You never know. There's no such thing as a slam dunk. Although, as I have said before on the podcast, increasingly, I think it's a strong case. And this tape that we've also talked about and we'll talk about again is pretty strong evidence of Donald Trump's state of mind. Now, if he does get convicted on one or more counts, he's subject to prison time. Your question about who does the sentencing, it would indeed be Judge Cannon if Judge Cannon remains the judge presiding over the matter, presiding over the case and ultimately presiding over the trial. That's how it works. The district judge who oversees the trial is responsible for the sentencing. And that makes sense, of course, 
because that's the person, the judge who presides over the trial, who has seen the testimony, has seen the applications by the defense and by the prosecution, best understands the facts, best understands the law as applied to those facts, and is in the best position to try to impose a just sentence. Now, when you ask, could she be required to sentence him to prison time? The answer to that is no. None of the counts that Donald Trump is charged with carry a mandatory minimum sentence, as you sometimes have with certain kinds of narcotics offenses or firearms offenses or terrorism offenses. None of these counts, the obstruction counts and the willful retention of document counts, have mandatory minimum. So, so it's possible that Judge Cannon may not sentence Trump to jail time or much jail time. Whatever you think of Donald Trump, remember, this would be his first conviction, unless he's first convicted in the Manhattan DA's office case. He's an elderly person. And the sentencing guidelines, which have been around for a few decades, are no longer mandatory. So there'll be a calculation made. There'll be a pre-sentence report that will suggest a range of sentences if Donald Trump goes to trial and is convicted. But the judge is not bound by that. Now, as for the question of the appeal by the government, as you all may know, if Donald Trump is acquitted, there is no appeal because double jeopardy applies. On the other hand, in certain circumstances, depending on how egregiously the government finds there was a downward departure in the sentencing. So for example, if the sentencing guidelines called for six or seven or eight or nine years in prison and the judge decided no jail time at all, if the government can make a showing to an appellate court that it was procedurally and substantively unreasonable given the circumstances of the conviction, they can appeal and it'll be up to the appellate court either to maintain the sentence or remand it for a different sentence. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user at Rami James, who asks, doesn't the latest recording from Trump at Bedminster give the DOJ probable cause to search there? Hashtag AskPreet. So of course you're referring to the recording that the government has actually had for some period of time. In fact, it's recited and a partial transcript is contained in the indictment that was unsealed some weeks ago. What's new this week is that CNN and various other outlets in the media have obtained the actual audio recording of what the government has already had in its possession and has already recited in the indictment. Now, this question about why the government didn't search Bedminster has arisen from time to time. And Joyce Vance and I talked about the recording generally and what it means and how powerful it is on the Cafe Insider this week. Just because there's a recording that's finally been released to the public doesn't mean you have automatic probable cause to search a particular premises because the freshness of the PC, as prosecutors will say and as judges will say, may not be there. So the conversation we're talking about occurred in the summer of 2021. The indictment came two years later. The leak of this audio recording came even after that. There are some questions, I think they're legitimate, about why the government didn't seek to search Bedminster when there's clearly some evidence of misconduct there and maybe mishandling of documents there in addition to Mar-a-Lago. And we're just speculating at this point, but it seems to me, and I think the best conclusion, is that at the time that the government was putting its case together, it did not have recent enough evidence that particular documents or particular contraband was located in particular spots at the premises at Bedminster. But hopefully, we'll get more facts and we'll find out what the true story is. This question comes in an email from Maureen, who writes, I miss the days when I did not know what Title 18 U.S. Code 2384 represented, but here we are. Question, did the Congress actually write and pass all of these 18 U.S.C. codes? It's hard to imagine that they did so, given the near stalemate of late. If not Congress, where do these codes come from? Maureen, thank you for reminding everyone about 18 U.S. Code 2384, which of course is a statute relating to seditious conspiracy, which has been in the news lately because a number of people have been convicted on that charge. 
which is rare in the history of prosecutions in this country. So notwithstanding your skepticism, Congress actually did write and pass all of these statutes. By definition, if it's a statute, a federal statute, it was duly passed by Congress and signed into law by the President of the United States at the time. In fact, in the federal system, to be convicted of a crime, you have to have violated a particular statute written and approved and passed by Congress. There's no such thing as a common law criminal violation. So people have to know with particularity and have notice as to what actions and what conduct can be penalized by criminal sanction, by indictment, by trial, and by conviction in a court. And when you say it's hard to imagine, given the stalemate of late, how all these laws got passed, well, many of these laws have been in the books for a very, very long time. Seditious conspiracy, some of the other laws you've been hearing us talk about on the podcast over the last number of years, including 18 U.S. Code Section 371, which relates to conspiracy, 18 U.S. Code 1001, which we talk about all the time, which relates to the making of false statements, to law enforcement, wire fraud, mail fraud, the various espionage counts that have been leveled against Donald Trump. Those are all statutory. They've all been passed by Congress. I've also found in my time as a prosecutor and also as a Senate staffer that when it comes to criminalizing things, there often is not as much of a stalemate. A debate for a different day is whether or not there are too many criminal statutes and whether or not we in this country have overcriminalized conduct. From time to time, the Supreme Court says, yeah, Congress has, and they invalidate a law as being vague, and that's happened recently. Or they will sometimes say a law is unconstitutional. And that may be the fate of some of our gun possession laws, as we've also talked about on the podcast and on the Cafe Insider. Thanks for your question. I'll be right back with my conversation with Suzanne Nossel. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, and delivering your product, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. But that's hard to do with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a top-rated cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. 
Head to netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. My guest this week is Suzanne Nossel. She's the CEO of PEN America, an organization dedicated to protecting free speech at home and abroad. Before she got that job, she worked on human rights issues at the highest levels of American foreign policy, serving as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State under Hillary Clinton and as the Deputy to the UN Ambassador under Richard Holbrook. Suzanne Nossel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brad. It's good to have you. There are a lot of things we want to talk about with you, including issues of uh, free speech, book bans that have taken hold in lots of places in the country. But I thought I'd start first by asking you a couple of questions about uh, human rights. Because you spent some time in your career, obviously, on behalf of the United States and also otherwise thinking about and caring about human rights. And my question to you is, so here we are in 2023. Is it your sense that the United States in some ways cares less about human rights around the world than it did, or at least appears to care less about human rights than it did? And if so, what the reason for that is? Does it have to do with pragmatism? Does it have to do with the fact that in some places in the world, they think the United States has compromised on human rights. What do you think the state of play is at the moment? Yeah, sure. Look, I think what you're alluding to are things like uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken going to China and giving just a one sentence uh, on human rights in his two pages of readout on his meetings there, or Modi coming to Washington for a state visit uh, with scarcely a mention of democracy and human rights uh, during his whole trip, notwithstanding really grave concerns about backsliding in India. He's got his number one opponent uh, in jail on politicized charges. Situation in Saudi Arabia. Biden had called Saudi Arabia pariah nation after the butchering of Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. And now, you know, last summer was the fifth bump and now uh, an assiduous effort to cultivate the Saudis and seek normalization of their relations with Israel. And I think the there are really three elements behind this. I think it is not so much a turning of the U.S.'s back on human rights or an indifference toward the cause. I actually think Biden does care about these things. I think he recognizes human rights values as part of what's distinctive in U.S. leadership. But I think they have not found their footing in terms of how to project that into the world. And it's because the main channel over the years that we've looked to, sort of high-profile pronouncements, human rights brinksmanships, uh, forceful statements during state visits, during foreign travel, when dealing directly with foreign interlocutors, I think that has become a lot more challenged. And it's for, uh, you know, I'd say three reasons. One, the U.S. is in a geopolitical competition that has intensified enormously. Uh, They're vying with the Chinese, they're seeking to sustain and in some cases gain the support of all sorts of middle powers. And it feels very zero sum. And I think the perception is it's difficult to insert human rights into that equation. They need the Philippines. Uh, they need India very badly. They yeah. need Indonesia. I'd say a second piece is what you allude to, alluded to, which is the 
diminution, the tarnishing of the U.S.'s reputation on human rights. And I think the third piece is that these countries really increasingly won't tolerate being what they see as being lectured by the United States. They're bigger now, uh, they're proud, and it can almost backfire in that it gets cast as a kind of hegemonism or imperialism on the United States' behalf to address the issues frontally. So I think you have to get more creative, and there are some new tactics that have been developed that I think are promising and that can form the basis for a potent U.S. human rights policy going forward. That first element you mentioned, that things have just gotten more difficult and the U.S. needs these other countries, India in particular, as it competes with China and confronts China, it just seems odd to me uh, not being an expert on foreign policy or international relations, that it's more difficult now and the channels are narrower now than during the Cold War when tensions between the United States and Russia and Russia's allies and orbit were much more profound, even than we see at this moment. How can it be, how can it be that as time has gone by, it's tougher now? And I guess you've answered that by talking about some of those other elements, but is there anything else? Look, I would I was contrasting it really with sort of the state of affairs, I'd say since the 80s and 90s when the US was in a period of dominance globally that was almost unchallenged and could throw away around its weight more liberally with less fear of repercussion. That didn't mean it was ever easy to bring up these issues. It always, you know, was contentious in my time in government. You know, you'd always have a back and forth with the regional folks in charge of the relationships about where human rights belonged. And they typically would not necessarily want to bring them up because it can be an irritant. It can cause friction and their job is to smooth out relations. But I think now, you know, certainly as compared to the last few decades, maybe not so much the Cold War period, uh, there is a real intensification of this competition. In the Cold War era, of course, human rights was very much a part of you know, what the U.S. was selling around the world, uh, an open and free society, of course, uh, checkered and with many serious hypocrisies and problems of our own. But that was a big part of the message. And I do think it remains a significant uh, component of the U.S.'s global diplomatic appeal. It's why people want to immigrate to this country, why asylum seekers uh, want to be here, why students want to be here, why uh, entrepreneurs want to set up new businesses in the United States. And so I think we need to continue to build on that. We can't turn our backs on that. And we have to find new ways to project those values internationally. What are some of those new tactics that you alluded to? Well, some of the things are, you know, we've done uh, a, a relatively new set of measures involves individualized human rights sanctions on perpetrators of abuses. So people within governments who are actually personally responsible for sending dissidents to jail for torture, uh, for, you know, for example, the camps in Xinjiang, maintaining those uh, and disciplining individuals within those, holding those people accountable so that they can't use the international banking system. They so can't like the Magnitsky visas. Act, for example. Yeah, Magnitsky-style yeah. uh, sanctions. And, and when they're done globally in particular, it can really constrict someone's lifestyle and be, I think, you know, both a way of holding people accountable and a, a powerful disincentive. Uh, I think the role of dissidents and exiles is absolutely crucial and how we can better support them. And that's something at PEN America that we've pivoted toward more because more of our writers who we've been working with in countries have had to flee. And so how we keep their voices alive on the global stage, 
even from exile. And that's easier to do now with technology. Do you think Prime Minister Modi in particular, given how his country's population now is the largest in the world, they're trying to go from being the fifth largest economy to the third largest economy, given the dynamic between the United States and China, that, that Modi and India feel particularly immune from lecture? Yeah, I think he does. I think he senses that the United States needs India as a counterbalance in Asia against China, that it very much wants India as part of its collaborative sphere of influence, uh, you know, working with other countries. And I do think that puts leverage in his hands. And, you know, that that is how diplomacy works, you know, a big rising country with which you have some affinity and some ability to collaborate becomes a a very central relationship. So going back to your current position as the CEO of PEN America, for people who may not be familiar, could you explain to folks what PEN America is, what it does, what its origins are? Sure. We're actually a hundred-year-old organization. It was founded in- Happy birthday. Thank you. It was last year, but still celebrating. Uh, we were founded after World War One by a group of writers initially in Europe, but uh, right away picked up in the United States who believed that writers had a role to play in preventing future wars and that if you could create almost a kind of United Nations of writers, that could be a force of enlightenment and to bridge across ideological and geographic divides And they developed a charter focused on the defense of freedom of expression. And it was quite a prescient charter. Uh, They worked on it for a while, and it was finalized in 1948. And it talks about the defense of free expression, but also a duty to avoid and, and put down all hatreds. And so it has this notion that you're not just defending open expression, but you do recognize what can be dangerous in expression, and you have an obligation to contend with that as well. And over the years, the organization has been a home for leading luminary writers. If you look back at our, we have an archive on our website of our board of directors over the years, and it's just extraordinary. You look at, you know, who was on in the 80s. It's Miller, Baylor, Sontag, Bellow, Basheva Singer, uh, all at the same time. You can just imagine what these meetings were like. I hear they were very contentious often. And over the years, we've developed into, especially I'd say in the last decade, into an organization that has uh, sort of two interlocking arms. We're an organization that both celebrates and defends freedom of expression worldwide. And on the celebration side, we give out the United States' most comprehensive program of literary awards. It's been called the Oscars of Books, uh, now by Vanity Fair and the New York Times. It's a really wonderful uh, ceremony that we do every March. We do a big literary festival where we bring in writers from all over the world and a whole range of public programs all over the country, we have offices in Washington and Los Angeles and 10 chapters in cities like Tulsa, Birmingham, and Miami. And then we have a very robust freedom of expression defense arm that works both globally and here in the United States. Globally, heart and soul of it is work on behalf of individual imperiled writers, people who are jailed and persecuted because of expressing themselves. We had 311 writers we documented were imprisoned in 2022 uh, for the crime of saying or writing their piece. And so we track those cases. We advocate on behalf of those individuals' freedom. We have a pretty good track record of getting them freed. 
And then we also tackle policy issues like censorship, uh, China's global reach into free societies. Uh, we did a big report on cultural repression as both a, a motivation and a method of the war in Ukraine, the effort to erase a distinct Ukrainian culture. And then here in the United States, we address press freedom issues, disinformation, online harassment as a free expression issue. And then we've really become deeply engaged in a whole host of threats to free speech in the realm of education over the past, I'd say, five or six years. You have had to focus on, as many people in this area have, on the conflict between multiple values that are important, not just in a democracy, but anywhere. And often when you're involved in the issue of free speech and the defense of free speech, the question is, what is the degree to which you defend that? And there's a conflict that arises between the fight against bigotry, the fight for inclusion on the one hand, and the defense of free speech on the other. And I've noted that you've talked about it in a fairly interesting way. How do you describe and think about that age-old conflict? Yeah, look, I think a lot of our free speech debates in the current era sort of derive from that very conflict, from the drive to bring about a more equal and inclusive society and deal with the lingering legacy of systemic racism and gender bias in this country. And, you know, if you think about it, we implemented most of formal equality decades ago, equal pay, equal access to education. Obviously, it's all imperfect, uh, but those laws are on the books. And yet we recognize that we still wrestle with discrimination in every sphere of society and drastic inequalities that can only be explained by perceiving and recognizing, acknowledging the role of bias in dictating those outcomes. And so in my view, to root out the that level of lingering bias, which really goes to kind of hearts and minds and how we perceive each other, uh, the stereotypes that inhabit our brains, you know, what comes to mind when we read a certain name or meet a certain person, those issues unavoidably, I think, do implicate speech. It's how we talk to each other, you know, what we hear when someone else speaks, uh, what assumptions we make, uh, what life experience we project onto them. And so the conflict between this phase of the drive for racial and gender inclusion and free speech, I think, is understandable. A lot of my work focuses on explaining how these values are not actually fundamentally at odds with each other and how we can both bring about a more equal and inclusive, whether it's a campus, school, or a society at large, without compromising robust protections for freedom of speech. And I think that's an imperative. I mean, these are both values that are so elemental to our society here in the United States. And so we have to find a way for them to fit together. And I think it can be done. And I've written in my book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. I've set out 20 principles for how to make this work. And it includes principles for when you're speaking, when you're listening, and when you're thinking about free speech debates and policy issues. And it's things like for speakers, exercising a kind of conscientiousness with language so that you are thinking about who's in your audience. You're not just assuming everybody you're talking to has a background just like your own. You're recognizing that there may be people who have very different perspectives and you frame your words accordingly. 
or having the respect to talk about people in the terms that they would choose if they want certain pronouns, if they don't want what they see as an anachronistic uh, designation being used for their racial group to recognize and respect that and avoid creating unnecessary friction through your words. And actually, it's helpful uh, as a speaker because you can get your point across. You don't sort of get bogged down in all the tensions that can arise when you use words more loosely. Is there a rational basis, putting aside the existence of the First Amendment in this country, but as a policy matter in democratic republics, is there a rational basis and a reasonable basis for banning hate speech? You know, I think the premise of bans on hate speech is that they are a tool to tamp down and eliminate hateful attitudes. And that if you ban the speech, sort of the sentiments will eventually dissipate. And I think what the evidence shows in environments where that has been tried is that it doesn't work that way. And on the contrary, it can provoke a fierce backlash that sends the speech sort of underground. I mean, in our modern iteration to whether it's the dark web or shadowy arenas uh, where people organize outside of view, it can provoke also a very pitched uh, and, and fierce backlash where people feel like their speech is being suppressed and they are even more determined to get it across or to expound their worldview, not just through speech, but through action. And so I think the question is, you know, in every setting, I don't think that's an absolute that it can never work. I do think on social media that the balance that, you know, it's a very kind of fraught balance on each of these platforms about how much speech is allowed, but they all tamp down on hate speech pretty heavily. And I think it does create an environment that's just more habitable. It would be miserable uh, if hate speech were allowed to flow freely uh, in an online social media forum. And so I think those restrictions are legitimate. I'm more hesitant about restrictions imposed by governments because I think on balance, if you give government the power to police speech, for example, uh, in a more intrusive way than our First Amendment allows, that by and large, they will exercise that power in a self-serving way. So if you gave, for example, Donald Trump the power to suppress hateful speech, well, what would be hateful speech in his mind? I think it's the speech of his journalist critics uh, and many other detractors. The reason I asked the question about hate speech, obviously, and I know you've debated this, is that there are certain bans on hate speech in thriving democratic republics, including Germany and Canada. And so I guess on the one hand, the question is, does it improve matters? Does it improve attitudes? That's one question. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But on the other hand, does it do something pernicious? And I think as you've acknowledged, and I'm not, by the way, just so the audience knows, I'm not advocating for any of this. I'm just asking the question. You know, Canada is a pretty thriving, pluralistic society, and the bans on hate speech do you think they're doing significant harm or neutral? Yeah, look, I don't think they do significant harm. And I think, you know, these countries are all democracies. They all allow pretty wide berth for freedom of speech. There are issues that arise, you know, for example, uh, in Europe where the prohibitions on hateful speech on the basis of religion get used to suppress debate on issues of Israel-Palestine, for example, or uh, a woman who 
wants to challenge her her abuser in the context of a Me Too movement, uh, you know, gets accused of defamation and hate speech for calling him basically a pig. And so, you know, there are problems that arise. And it's impossible, of course, to do a kind of controlled study. I did, when I was looking at my book, I looked at the rates of anti-Semitic incidents in the United States and in Germany and how they had evolved over time and found that they had it, anti-Semitism had increased its manifestations in both places at almost exactly the same rate, notwithstanding the ban on Holocaust denial in Germany, which you can understand historically why they have that ban in place. Uh, but is it really doing the work of helping to eliminate anti-Semitism? I think that remains an open question, but I think it's a, f- a fair question and a question that we should continue debate uh, to, to debate. I think here in the United States, uh, our First Amendment regimen, you know, to me is something we should be very hesitant to tinker with. It doesn't mean that all other countries need to comply with it. But I think if we were to lower the standard here, people tend to, I think, imagine, you know, if we were to police hate speech, it would be some combination of a Thurgood Marshall and maybe uh, Barack Obama and uh, sage jurists who would do this line drawing. But of course, the reality is it would be judges all over the country with all kinds of political dispositions. It would be today's Supreme Court. And I think you have to ask yourself where those lines would be drawn and would it sweep up speech that you believe is legitimate, is not hate speech, is bona fide criticism, is holding people accountable, is uh, you know speaking truth to power and all of those things that we value. Yeah. I mean, the worry would be, as you're describing, that once you open the door to that, I don't know how this works in Germany and Canada and other places, but once you open the door to that in the United States, you would then have many, many constituencies clamoring for the declaration of certain things being hate speech or certain groups being protected. And where do you draw the line? Is that the problem? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, that, you know, those provisions that we see this on social media, I'm also a member of the Meta Oversight Board. And, you know, what is considered a slur on the platform is contested territory. And, you know, we have debates right now raging over what speech is harmful, you know, speech on transgender issues that people consider harmful in both directions. Uh, People are very concerned about how gender is treated and dealt with and what ideas and narratives are accessible to children. They believe it can be very harmful. And then on the other hand, uh, the transgender community believing that certain debates that implicate their identity are profoundly harmful. So that would all become sort of within scope if we had hate speech prohibitions uh, and we were more aggressive in policing harmful speech. I have no doubt that you'd have pitched battles over a whole range of issues about what ought to qualify. So it may be partly that we're a more diverse society than some of these other places where these bans seem to have been in place for a long time without that much contestation. Do we get offended too easily these days? I mean, I think so. Look, I I think <laughs> awareness careful. awareness of offense your answer may offend. offensive. Right. No, I know. I mean, that's <laughs> always the risk. And, you know, it it it's one it's it's sort of part of my uh daily daily work is thinking about, you know, how what I say is going to be received or maybe misconstrued. Um I think that 
it is a worthy thing that we now are more cognizant of the ways in which speech can wound. When I, you know, some years ago, when I started writing the book, you know, one of the premises within the free speech movement, if you will, it was that speech, you don't want to acknowledge that speech can cause harm because in so doing, you're opening up the door to censorship. And I thought, you know, this is not quite right. It, it doesn't ring true. There obviously are some circumstances in which speech can cause harm. Someone who is subject to pervasive stereotyping or slurs throughout their whole life, that is going to, and this has been documented in psychological uh, and even medical studies, that that can cause uh, both physiological and psychosocial harm. It can impair academic performance. And so, you know, that's real. And I think we have to own up to that. At the same time, I also think this notion of speech being harmful has become very elastic and expansive in problematic ways, and that uh, any offense we now tend to equate with harm. People believe that any offensive speech you encounter is a cause of harm. And I think that's mistaken. I think in living in a diverse society, we need to engage with others. We're going to be offended. There are going to be things that bother us, and we need to develop the skills and the resiliency to hear that stuff out, to respond to it, to process it, uh, to talk about it with our friends and family if we were upset and we need to get over it, but without sort of casting it as this irreparable harm, something that is harmful, because that does open the door to the idea that society or government ought to step in and stop it from happening. And I think that's where it gets very problematic uh, because of how that power tends to be exercised if we afford it to those those in positions of authority. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. And I was going to quote from a recent interview that you did on this issue that, you know, credibly you gain more by acknowledging there's some harm. You, you said this in a recent interview, quote, and so I think for a free speech defender, we're more credible if we acknowledge that those harms do exist. But then you go on to say, but we also recognize that those harms can be and are often exaggerated, projected, presumed, end quote. And I was really struck by the verb presumed. What do you mean by that? Who's doing the presuming and what are those presumptions? Yeah, I mean, when I talk about presumed in that context, what I'm thinking about is, you know, people are aware of our history of racial prejudice in this country, of gender bias, and they've become, and I think in a, in a, constructive and important way, much more cognizant of the experience of others. I think of young people, you know, where they're they're not just oblivious to the fact that there are students of a different race who are in the minority in the classroom. You know, they're mindful of that. They may be paying attention to whether those students seem to feel free to speak up. Uh, can they make their views heard? Are they in, imbued with a sense of belonging on the university campus? And I think that's a very good consciousness uh, that, you know, and I'm impressed with young people because they do think about that and they're, they're much more mindful of that. And I think important and necessary ways for our ability to live together in a diverse society. At the same time, there can be this protective, you know, and I think well-intended impulse to sort of jump in and say, you know, what I heard 
you know, would have offended that other person. And, uh, you know, it's not actually the person who's supposedly offended who is speaking up. Uh, it's sort of a third party who feels a compulsion to jump in. I think, look, in some instances, it's valid and they're really speaking up for somebody who maybe for whatever reason doesn't feel they can make their voice heard. And I think in other instances, frankly, they're kind of projecting, they're presuming, they're wanting to demonstrate that they care, that they are cognizant of what's going on, that are you they gonna, are Are you skeptical. about to use the phrase virtue signaling, Suzanne? Well, you used it, uh, not me. No. <laughs> But, you know, it's I think it's it's, you know, we all virtue signal in some way in our lives. I think that's a human instinct we want to be well thought of. But I think it can become a kind of censorious instinct. And you see it online where people sort of chime in. You know, we've been at Penn looking at uh, the books and how books are released and instances where enormous controversy can erupt in relation to books, sometimes even before they are published. And you see all these people sort of chiming online, in online about a book they haven't even read and, uh, you know, just weighing in, in support of a group that supposedly is depicted in a unfavorable light in this book. And, you know, sometimes the author is by, the author is is someone who's part of that group. It's a black author. It's a Latino author. And yet the nature, a transgender author, and yet the nature of the story sort of seems to uh, cast a dark light. And all these critics chime in online. It's like, well, what is that impulse uh, that you need to make yourself heard in relation to a book that you haven't read? I'll be right back with Suzanne Nossel after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Speaking of books, I want to get to the thing that I really want to talk to you about maybe more than anything else, and that is the rise of book bans. In the United States, it gets a lot of attention. You hear about it in all quarters, many different counties in the United States. Let's begin with a basic question uh, so we understand what the terms we're using mean. When you or someone at PEN America says a book ban, what does that mean? What's your definition of a book ban and what's the scope of that issue in the country at the moment? Yeah, sure. So we we had to confront this question about how to define book bans. And we define them as instances where a book that was previously available is taken out of circulation or availability, be that temporarily 
or permanently. And so if a book was on a sixth grade classroom shelf and a parent lodges a challenge and the book is taken away to undergo a review process at the school board, even if it's eventually returned, we will call that a ban, although it may be a temporary ban. And we have documented over the last couple of years more than 4,000 books banned uh, here in the United States in schools and both school libraries and classroom libraries. And it's it's quite startling in that during my first few years at Penn, we dealt with book bans. I was actually surprised when I got to the organization that they still dealt with book bans. I thought it seemed so kind of anachronistic. And we dealt with a few a year. We'd usually write a letter to a school board or a library and ask that the book be put back on the shelves. Very often that worked. Uh, It was something we sort of did with one finger. And now it's become a weapon of choice in our culture wars, a tactic that has been embraced and endorsed and legislatively sanctioned in parts of the country. And it's really an alarming effort to suppress certain narratives. Overwhelmingly, the books that are targeted are by and about members of racial minorities or LGBTQ stories and narratives. And so you, it's very clear sort of what they're going after, what they're trying to repress. And it's it's part of this really harsh tit-for-tat battle as we become a more equal, more inclusive, encompassing society, there are some elements that feel profoundly threatened and that are using these tactics as a way to push back. And what's so sort of alarming about it to me is just that the the, the First Amendment kind of gets trampled and and forgotten and just absolutely sidelined in all of this. And I, I am honestly shocked by how quickly in these communities, even politicians, governors of states like Ron DeSantis uh, seem to be ready to resort to out-and-out censorship. I saw that you were written somewhere, I think it was you, that in a country where we have so many young people obsessed with their screens and have access to pretty much everything and the full range of offensive and difficult and problematic, not only words and books, but also images that the fact we're worrying about books on the shelf of a school seems ludicrous. Do, do I paraphrase you relatively accurately? Yeah, no, I have said that. And it, I mean, it's a phenomenon I've observed in other contexts, which is that when people feel like the debate or the discourse or the information ecosystem is out of their control, their impulse to police small spaces intensifies. And, you know, we've seen this sort of in, you know, when it comes to kind of cancel culture, that there's this intense impulse to sometimes purify, whether it's, you know, the staff of a magazine or a small organization out of a sense that, uh, you know, particularly as I'd say during the Trump administration, that hateful attitudes were running rampant in society writ large. And so, you know, in this little environment that we control, we're absolutely not going to tolerate it. And I think that's uh, part of what is at work here, people sensing that their children are being exposed to all of this. It's unavoidable in 2023 in the society we live in uh, with kids spending upwards of seven hours a day on their phones. And so books is something they can control. It's a place where they can take a stand, where they can assert and project and signal their values publicly. And 
you know, that, that precedent, that mode has been, uh, introduced. And I think people find it an appealing way to kind of push back against a lot that seems really out of hand to them. I wonder how many parents there are who support and vociferously complain about particular books and have them banned, but don't monitor the screen time of their children. Do you think there are such people? I'm sure there are because, you know, honestly, <laughs> monitoring lot. the screen time is tough. You know, it's not as easy as, you know, filling out a, a one-page form and getting, you know, uh, you can't get an app pulled from the store, uh, you know, to, to go under review uh, by some district board. Uh, it's it's just a lot tougher and a lot more intrusive. Yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is a better understanding of of why this is taking place more recently. I think you've written or said that something organized seems to be afoot. Who's or, who's organizing and is it for political reasons? Is it, is it really, is this really the thing that they're targeting or is it a proxy for something else? I think you've suggested maybe it's the latter. Yeah, no, it's absolutely organized. There's no question about that. I mean, we see these long lists of books that get passed around from community to community uh, as the basis for objections. The language, the very language is one and the same that down to the typos uh, and the syntax errors in the complaint forms that people are filing. So there's no question it's an organized movement. And I think it is motivated by a sense of anxiety and a kind of lashing out against cultural change. And, you know, the idea, and this is something that has surfaced, you know, time and again, if you look at, you know, the debates over book banning, Decades ago, it always kind of speaks to this idea that there's a pure uh, sort of untouched idyll with children and that there are forces that are coming in to threaten that uh, and bringing wrongheaded values and pernicious ideas and distorting kids' identity, sexualizing them, uh, you know, introducing different notions of how to live your life in ways that are corrupting. And, you know, the these movement, these organized groups like Mom for Lib- Moms for Liberty have sort of presented to parents the notion that you can fight back, that you can reclaim uh, and take charge. And, you know, here's a blueprint for doing it. And I think, you know, for people that may feel sort of disempowered, may feel like, the, you know, there's is a time gone by that cannot adapt to social and cultural change, you know, that becomes appealing to be able to push back, to join together with others in a movement. And, I, you know, to me, sort of that's a lot of what is at work here. You know, in some instances, look, you know, these are issues that we need to debate. You know, what is the right way to talk about gender to very young children. I think that has to be up for discussion. And there have been times on the left where I think there's been an overly prescriptive approach that probably isn't going to work in every community. But, you know, we all know, as those of us who are parents or even, you know, growing up as kids, there are ways to deal with these things. You talk to the teacher, you talk to the principal, you know, you have a meeting, you propose a a different book. Uh, You don't resort to legislation and bans here in the United States of America. And so that's what's so troubling here. It's not so much that the the debates are happening. It's the tactics that have been introduced and embraced. Can you give some examples for the audience of particular books or the kinds of books that are sought to be banned. For example, can you explain why people want to ban the diary of Anne Frank? Yeah, I mean, it's because of like, you know, a couple of scenes that involve her sexual 
fantasies and ruminations uh, that, you know, are in this, you know, really long uh, book that is, you know, about so much else. And so that becomes uh, a lightning rod. Uh, And, you know, then we've seen that with Mouse, uh, for example, you know, a new drawing. Um, So in some instances, it's, you know, really this kind of outlandish uh, cherry picking of, uh, you know, bits and pieces of books to find a basis to object. And it really seems counterproductive because these these works of literature are so widely recognized. And so it's a real spectrum of books. I mean, there are some books that are quite explicit. They're kind of young adult uh, graphic novels that you can see why if you open it up, you see, wow, you know, this is pretty explicit. It's not pornographic. It's not something that is aimed to turn people on. It's Rather, they're, they're explorations of identity. And we hear persistently that some of these books, like, for example, Gender Queer or uh, All Boys Are Blue, can be lifesavers for certain kids, kids who are outliers, whose identity uh, is not accepted in their societies. They pick up a book like this and they can suddenly see that there's somebody like them, that there's a way forward. And that's why those books were written. They're really kind of written for those kids. And I think they play an important role, you know, and yet you can understand why, you know, some parents and and particularly depending on the age range might think, you know, that is very inappropriate. And that's something that, uh, you know, needs to be up for discussion in communities. But then there are all sorts of other books where honestly, the the basis for objecting uh, really seems completely spurious. Is it possible that we overstate the harm and perniciousness of these book bans? So, for example, you mentioned Mouse. I recall reading that when that was banned in some school somewhere or some library somewhere, that it immediately went to number one <laughs> on the bestseller list. And that these books, not like in the old days where the only place you can get a book is your library, that people's efforts to ban books backfires and actually presents some of these publications to a much wider audience. Any fairness to that argument? That happens only in the most limited of circumstances, where mm-hmm. it's something like Mouse that draws interna- uh, you know international headlines. Yes, you're going to see a surge in uh, purchases of that book. But by and large, these books that are being targeted uh, are not at that level of visibility or recognition. Sometimes they're first-time authors. Uh, they're uh, you know authors who are making a living from this. And you don't see that kind of surge when their book is banned. And in fact, you see... There are districts that are, you know, then reluctant to buy that book because they don't want to spark controversy. The publishers have to think about how they handle that book, whether they sign that book, what the next book is from that author, because, you know, perhaps they're not going to be able to sell it into Florida. And so what we see is it can really harm and compromise people's careers. And, you know, unfortunately, it would be nice if, if book banning kind of consistently backfired and you could count on that. But, uh, you know, it really does have a repressive effect. And, you know, also on just what books are greenlighted for publication. The publishers are under a lot of pressure because of these tactics and they, you know, they sell big into places. Yeah. Do you think this is having a chilling effect on on publishers? They're very cognizant of it. I mean, I'll tell you that. And they're, you know, they run national businesses and they have uh, distribution in Florida, 
in Texas. Uh, you know, a lot of them rely heavily on the school market for children's and young adult books. And so, you know, they can't afford to ignore it. They're very alarmed by it. That's why Penguin Random House joined us in our lawsuit that we filed in Escambia County, Florida, to challenge one of the most egregious patterns of book banning that we had seen. And we're talking with other publishers that really recognize that you know, their business and also the values that they stand for, the, the basic fundamental freedom to read is at stake and eroding in our culture and that we need to push back. Well, you, you got ahead of me there because I was going to ask you about what you just mentioned, because you know what we love on this podcast? A lawsuit. We love a lawsuit. <laughs> we, love a, we love a good lawsuit. Could you <laughs> explain more about what the lawsuit is and what the basis is? Yeah, sure. I mean, unfortunately, the law on book banning is not great in this country. There's only one kind of operative Supreme Court case, uh, Pico versus Island Tree, which was a plurality decision. It's kind of very split and fragmented reasoning uh, in that opinion. And so, you know, we had to be thoughtful about where to file a case. But the fact pattern in Escambia County, Florida, was just so egregious. Uh, More than 100 book removals sparked by a single individual teacher who filled out uh, forms, handwritten forms, objecting to all these books, made clear she hadn't read most of them uh, parroted language from objections filed elsewhere in the country. And these books were immediately removed from the shelves. Now, the standard practice from the American Library Association and the National Coalition Against Censorship is that when there's a book challenge, the book should remain in circulation while the book is reviewed. And if the disposition is ultimately to remove the book, you do it at that point. You don't do it preemptively. They did it preemptively. They also had a district commission comprised of experts, a a parent, a, a librarian, an educator charged with looking at and reading cover to cover each of the books that was challenged. That commission did its work and time and again said, this book belongs on the shelves. This book has merit. It's valuable for students. It shouldn't be withheld. And yet the school board persistently overruled them, uh, deciding that, you know, notwithstanding the opinions of their own designated experts, that these books were going to be taken away. And so it seems to us uh, to be just a very clear case uh, on two fronts. We've challenged based on both the First and the 14th Amendment uh, that these books are being discriminated against on the basis of viewpoint, the stories that are told therein, the ideas contained in these these books are, are clearly the basis for the removals and withdrawals, and also that disproportionately the bans target books by authors uh, of color uh, and LGBTQ authors, and so that it is a form of discrimination against them and their readers on the basis of protected characteristics. And I think that part of the suit is novel, but it really reflects what we see in terms of the pattern of book banning nationally, where uh, these groups are being targeted uh, in a pinpointed way. Yeah. Is PEN America an actual party in the lawsuit? Yeah, we are. As an organization of authors, we have associational standing to bring a lawsuit like this. And we have a a few of our member authors who are uh, among the group of plaintiffs and also some parents, uh, some students and Penguin Random House. Do you contemplate more lawsuits of this type? 
you know, we're looking uh, at other suits uh, and working with other teams that are doing the same. I think it's extremely important. I mean, there's, you know, always, of course, sort of some hesitancy and how is this going to come out and what are the courts like? But, you know, if we can't sort of stand up for the First Amendment under these circumstances, and if we distrust our courts so much that, you know, we don't believe these very fundamental rights are going to be vindicated, I think we're in big trouble as a society. And so I think it's it's really important to have these arguments both in the public domain and in the legal arena. Give any advice or counsel for parents and others in various communities where these issues percolate up? Yeah, look, we have a lot of tools and materials and guidance on our website that we provide for parents and students who are trying to push back the best arguments to make, uh, what has worked in other communities, you know, how you can prepare for a school board meeting on one of these challenges. And so, you know, there is a kind of blocking and tackling, and we're working with many groups at the local level and the state level to skill up local activists and parents, because overwhelmingly, Americans do not like book banning. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, the polls are consistent uh, that people reject this tactic. And even Ron DeSantis has said that the claims of book banning are hoax. He doesn't want to be seen as a book banner. Uh, Of course, he's wrong about that, and we have the proof to show it. But, you know, the fact that he doesn't like this label, I think, says something. And the parents who've participated with us in this lawsuit say, overwhelmingly, the response, you know, I think they were perhaps a little bit nervous, but has been positive from other parents. People are glad they're standing up. And so we really encourage parents that once you know, you step forward uh, and speak out, others will follow, and you can make common cause and kind of, you know, what is sometimes a silent majority can assert itself. I want to go back before we end to something you mentioned earlier that we talk about on the show, and I think sometimes gets lost in the mix when people throw around words like censorship and banning and free speech. The distinction between a ban or a restriction imposed by a platform like Meta or Twitter versus uh, a a ban or a restriction imposed by the government. And we all sort of kind of understand that because the First Amendment is written the way it's written. But could you explain, not as a constitutional matter, but as a principled and pragmatic matter, why there's such a big difference? How you can be somebody who advocates so strongly for free speech, not being restricted by the government, but understand that on a platform that some would say is as powerful as a government, restrictions are appropriate. Yeah, I mean, I try to be careful and only use the term censorship when I'm referring to government action. I talk about censoriousness, and I think censoriousness is a phenomenon that you can see in all sorts of realms, but out-and-out censorship, I limit to government action. And, you know, the point you raise is an important one. I mean, these platforms, the decisions they make can be highly consequential and society-shaping, but I think the the baseline that we want to set you know, to me, it just seems unmistakable that it's different and that if you set a First Amendment standard and you restricted platforms like Meta and Twitter uh, in the way that government is restricted and required that all the speech that's protected within the scope of the First Amendment be allowed in those arenas, those arenas would be dysfunctional. And it has to do with the algorithmic underpinnings of those platforms and the ways in which they kind of weaponize human nature. Uh, You know, the First Amendment, I think, operates imperfectly, but pretty well sort of in the realm of 
human society, uh, face-to-face engagement, uh, you know, the worlds that we're used to in terms of publishing and the news media. I mean, of course, all that's changing quickly. The rise of AI, I think, is going to, you know, potentially bring up some profound new questions about the policing of speech. But the online arena operates very different. Speech moves with a different velocity. Uh, You know, we always, the Brandeis notion that the best answer to noxious speech is more speech. You know, online, uh, that's, it works very imperfectly. More speech can be, you know, thunderously censorious when someone says something and they uh, attract an avalanche of criticism and opprobrium. They can flee the platform, and and uh, you know it quickly translates into death threats. We deal with that in our online harassment program, and so I think one has to kind of own up to that pragmatically. And there's also you know the other issue that where the place where this comes up is you know how do we think about sort of the censoriousness from the left on college campuses and you know trigger warnings and disinvitations to speakers and the shouting down of the federal judge at Stanford vis-a-vis something like book bans or prohibitions on what can be taught and studied in higher education what we call educational gag orders and i do think if you're making a hierarchy a pyramid of threats to free speech that you do have to put uh, legislated threats, those that are backed by the power of the government, uh, ahead of those that are informal, uh, you know, even if they're driven by mobs, and they can be very silencing. I, you know, I don't uh, deny that, but I do think when bar- the power of government is invoked, that that is something that has to be taken more seriously. And it's also more permanent. You know, these laws are going to have to be repealed eventually. Suzanne Nossel, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Priya. It was fun. My conversation with Suzanne Nossel continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In the bonus for insiders, I asked Nossel how the rise of AI will impact questions of free speech and censorship. You know, one of the issues that's come up in the context of the Writers Guild strike is whether there are going to be uh, large language models that essentially can generate a full script for a crime procedural series, uh, you know, that goes on air, uh, obviating the role of the writer. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. To end the show this week, I want to highlight something very cool and important that's going on in the great state of New Jersey, where as folks may know, I was raised and where my parents still live. This year, New Jersey became the first state in the country to implement climate change education in all of its public school classrooms. That means that students from kindergarten through 12th grade learn about the causes of climate change and how to help solve it. The mandate was the culmination of a years-long effort by New Jersey First Lady Tammy Murphy, along with hundreds of educators who saw the need to incorporate climate education at all levels. Now, we're seeing the effects of the mandate in action. As reported in the New York Times, schools have found creative and engaging ways to bring climate education into their lesson plans. A teacher at the Slackwood Elementary School, north of Trenton, asked seven-year-old students what penguins could do to adapt to warmer temperatures. One student suggested they migrate to the U.S. during wintertime. Another student suggested humans give the penguins floaties. And another suggested maybe a few could live in her parents' fridge. Okay, so not all of those are workable. But the idea behind this kind of education, as the Times explains, is to teach problem-solving skills. 
After all, the younger generation will be burdened with figuring out solutions to warmer temperatures, high sea levels, frequent storms, and as Americans in the Northeast experienced recently, unexpected poisonous smoke from wildfires. The students learn about cause and effect, like what happens when one species disappears from an ecosystem, and about pollination, composting, and sustainability. Dr. Lauren Madden, a professor of elementary science education, told the Times, quote, when we shield them from so much, they're not ready to unpack it when they learn about it, and it becomes more scary than when they understand they're in a position where they can actively think about solutions. When you take kids seriously that way and trust them with that information, you can allow them to feel empowered to make locally relevant solutions, end quote. Now, we know that young people have such vivid imaginations, and they're eager to solve problems. As I just discussed with Suzanne Nossel, our kids deserve to know the truth, whether it be about American history or the challenge that climate change poses to our collective future. And they also deserve to be equipped with the tools to fight for climate justice and save our planet. As the teachers in New Jersey have shown, it's not all gloom and doom. This material can be taught in a way that empowers students makes them believe in their own agency, and builds optimism. So I commend this effort in the Garden State, and I hope to see more like it. And you never know, one of these students may bring us an earth-changing solution one day. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Suzanne Nossel. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. <laughs>